Here's some advice from the Dalai Lama. <clears throat> he said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So as I've mentioned earlier today, compassion is the topic of tonight's talk. I in no way consider myself to be an expert on it, but I do have a sincere interest in it and a pretty strong motivation to practice it and refine it as a way of life. And I know, listening to those of you who spoke today, that the same is true for you. It may be that after a long day of sitting and walking <clears throat> and trying to be mindful, that you're more aware of suffering than you are of compassion. Various aches and pains and stress in the body, different kinds of torments in the mind, wanting and not wanting, confusion, doubt, distractedness, all of this and more is what we see when we sit still and pay attention, try to pay attention. But maybe you've also experienced a moment or two of ease, of clarity, of quiet, where you saw what was happening where you were able to let go of a train of thought or a tangle of emotion and return to the simplicity and peace of being with a breath, being with the sensation of stepping. Maybe there was some softening around a painful experience or patience in just being present with it. Sometimes what we refer to as torments of mind can be so painfully clear on retreat. I remember sitting in the hall somewhere right around here on my first three-month retreat, at some point well into the retreat, uh, and asking a question in the morning. It was the only question that I asked in those three months in the hall. And the question that I asked was, if we were no longer motivated by greed, by aversion, or by delusion, what would cause us to act at all? It was a very sincere question, even though I think of myself, and I did then, as a fairly good person, well-intending, generally kind, Still, those unskillful forces in the mind, on even very subtle levels, seemed so pervasive that imagining a mind and a heart without even a trace of them seemed like facing some kind of a void. And I remember the answer that was given to my question, what would cause us to act at all? And the answer that I was given was wisdom and compassion. 
it's not really something that can be known intellectually, that answer, the truth of that, but it's a pretty compelling possibility and a pretty strong motivation to practice for me. Before going on, I want to kind of clear the air a little bit about love. (laughs) I feel some resistance to even using the word. It's so often cliched. It's either sentimental or it's possessive or it's in some other way distorted. It's a word that seriously loses its meaning in our culture through overuse. Here's just one example. I always wonder what they mean when they say on an ad, love is what makes a Subaru a Subaru. (laughs) Have you ever heard that ad? I hear it all the time on NPR. And it kind of makes me stop. I'm thinking like, what do they mean by that? Is it that they make the cars with love? Or is it that the people love the cars? But even if the people didn't love the cars, wouldn't they still be a Subaru? Anyway, it's that kind of use of the word that makes me hesitant to use it at all. But what is love in its purest form? How do we humans know it or offer it? I like to think of love as a state of being that has an unconditional aspect that is open kind, inclusive, and responsive. I'd like to read you a short piece from a compilation of stories and reflections on service that was put together years ago by Ramdas and Paul Gorman. It's called, How, How Can I Help? The state had just released many people from its mental institutions with very little preparation. Our halfway house was about to be flooded with applicants. We had only so much room. Who to shelter? Who to clothe? Who to feed? Deep questions to be faced very suddenly. An hour before we opened, we agreed to sit together in silence. Meditation, prayer, just plain calming down. Everyone went for their ammo. Then we opened the doors, somehow trusting. Everything we did, we agreed to do with love. Those people we we accepted with love. Those we turned away or helped find alternatives, love. Everyone seemed to understand. The differences between us all, staff and applicants alike, seemed less solid. The whole idea that it had to do with mental illness even seemed a little artificial. Nobody was really thinking that much, or had time to, or needed to, or something. So much of it was just coming from the heart. So many people with so many problems, but it went so smoothly. How? The day after we were done, we sat down to discuss what had happened, your classic evaluation procedure. Can we come to order? which was met with some laughter. So, someone said. Then this one person stood up and said, 
these, these past three days, that was about who we all really are. The way we were, that was the truth about us, deep down. There was a moment's silence. Someone said, right, and that was the meeting. We waited a little longer. You're not used to things becoming clear like that. But after a minute or two, people gradually got up and went back to work. Meeting our experience with love, the easy parts and the difficult parts. Doing the work that needs to be done with love. What does it mean? Sometimes it can seem really distant. But in times like the one described in that story, we intuitively understand that love and selfless connection is not only inherently available to us, it is who we are. But so often, in our own experience, we see that something other than love arises in response to suffering. Maybe fear or resistance, avoidance, anger or overwhelm. With practice in meditation, we start to see these habitual responses more clearly and understand very directly that they only create more suffering. And so we learn over time to let go more readily, to not be ruled by those habits of mind, and even to develop new habits, such as opening to suffering with acceptance rather than avoidance, with interest rather than resistance, and with understanding rather than identification. This is a training that happens on the meditation cushion, in looking at our own minds. But it's also an orientation that carries over into our lives and our work. My mother suffers from a mental illness. And at this stage in her life, she's also in quite a bit of physical pain. So she's suffering a lot. And being the person who shows up in her life, I'm a good target for her pain, for her frustration and her anger. So our relationship is a great training ground in my interest in being compassionate, in exploring and refining that. It so often doesn't go the way I think it should. My preference is that I would be consistently kind and actually helpful, <laughs> and that she would be receptive and maybe even appreciative. <laughs> I think it's going well when there's some clarity and some spaciousness on my part 
to see what needs doing and be able to do it. I also prefer not to contract or to respond in reactivity when I'm challenged. But I don't always have that choice. Sometimes there's space. Sometimes I'm quicker to react. Not too long ago, very recently in fact, during a particularly challenging visit, I came out of the house where my husband was already waiting in the car. We were going to do her grocery shopping. And I got into the car with my husband and I said, I feel hatred toward my mother. It was awful, so tight and so contracted, and it kind of freaked me out to feel it. But as talking to my husband for just a moment, just a couple moments, helped me to see, I was aware of it. I wasn't actually speaking out of anger. I wasn't acting it out. It was a moment. And in seeing it, in actually naming it, and not adding blame or self-judgment, it enabled it to pass pretty quickly. More recently, on another visit, I had what I think of as a good visit, where I made a fair amount of progress, got a lot done. I was pretty patient and non-reactive to her criticisms. What was the difference? I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I'm not sure. It could be as mundane as being more rested, or maybe it was that cup of coffee I had before <laughs> arriving, a little extra energy. But what I do know is that making it a practice really helps. Rather than having a fixed idea of how it should go, taking an interest in seeing how it does go, being patient with myself as well as her, practicing forgiveness for both of us. It's much more of a process than an ideal. This has been a very challenging practice for me. There's so much that needs to be done there. And the word that I've come upon recently that most accurately describes pretty much every aspect of the situation is impossible. And I know, based on what some of you were sharing today, that you know what I mean. So what do we do when we're deeply motivated and make tremendous efforts to alleviate suffering, but we can't? It feels at time like a process of purification. I show up, I try to help, and due to the circumstances, it just isn't enough. It actually can never be enough. And I constantly have to be attentive to my reactions and see if I can let go there see if I can let go of my attachment to results. 
I know that there was a significant shift for me in this particular practice with my mother when I changed my focus from what she needed to what I needed to offer. When I thought I was doing it for her, predominantly for her, to affect some kind of positive change, I was much more likely to be attached to the outcome, to having it look a certain way. When I saw that I was doing it because it's what I need to do, it's the way my heart needs to respond, it was a lot easier. There was less attachment to outcome because I was doing what I needed to do, showing up, offering my help. So I still show up, I offer help, I chip away at the bigger issues, and I do whatever small things she'll allow. It's a process. I still doubt myself, but I see it sooner and I let go of it more easily. I still grieve when I really let the suffering of the situation in very deeply, but it moves through more quickly. It passes. It's really a process of cultivating compassion for both of us, side by side. One of my recent favorite books is called Here If You Need Me. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a memoir by a woman named Kate Braestrup. She lost her husband in a car accident, and then she became a chaplain for the search and rescue missions with the main uh, warden service. And I want to just share a little piece from this book. It's so cool that the warden service has a chaplain to keep us from freaking out, someone once said to her. Ah, I smiled. I'm not really here to keep you from freaking out. I'm here to be with you while you freak out. <laughs> or grieve, or laugh, or sing, or suffer. It is a ministry of presence. It is showing up with a loving heart. And it is really, really cool. Can we be with ourselves as we freak out? Or grieve? Or experience a moment or a wave of hatred? In order to open to another, whoever they are, a relative, a client, a stranger, a friend, we have to be able to open to all parts of ourselves. So how was it today? As you sat and walked in the silence, trying to be mindful, did you encounter any parts that you would rather not have seen? 
This is the cultivation of compassion as we practice opening to what is difficult. Remembering that it's a practice reminds us to be patient. Sometimes, though, it can feel like we're trying to force compassion based on our ideas of how we should be or how we should act, sort of squeezing it out of ourselves until we're empty and contracted. This is surely a path to burnout. Compassion isn't something that can be forced, but it is something we can learn to access, learn to trust. I had an interesting experience just a few days ago. Some of us heard that a little house on the opposite side of what we call the loop, this three-mile circular walk that starts out here on Pleasant Street, a little house on the other side of the loop was being sold at auction in foreclosure. And while we never even knew their names because they hadn't been there all that long, we were kind of fond of this little family that lived in the house, a single mom and two kids. And we felt concerned for them when we heard this. But there were a couple of us who were also potentially interested in hearing about the auction, potentially interested in finding out, maybe going. So we wanted to know more about it, and we went over there. There was this moment before we got out of the car where we felt really uncomfortable and concerned with how we might come across. Did we need to rehearse what we were going to say so that we would come across as compassionate and not greedy? But right away, we realized that the compassion or the openness of heart was actually already there. We could trust it to respond appropriately. As it turned out, the family was doing just fine. They were in good shape. They had a place to go. They were accepting of their situation. They were open to our visit, to our questions. And it ended up being a sweet little connection with them before they left. And the postscript of the story is we did go to the auction, but one of our other neighbors nearby on the loop uh, ended up purchasing the property. There's a wonderful quote by an Indian sage, Nisargadatta. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Both parts are essential. The love or compassion and the wisdom they balance and inform each other. If we only have love and the connection with everything, we might easily feel overwhelmed, 
subsumed by the enormity of suffering in this world. If we only have wisdom telling us that there is really nothing in this changing world that we can hold on to, it can feel cold and uncaring. But really, it's a distortion of wisdom to see only the emptiness and not the interconnection. One of the things we get to practice, you know, on the meditation cushion is, in a way, getting out of our own way or relaxing the contraction of the small self. And then compassion becomes the expression of emptiness, the emptiness that allows a total connection with everyone and everything. I know for me, in both my role as a daughter trying to help my mother, and also as a fairly recent, just six years ago, stepmother with teenagers in the house, one of whom struggled a great deal. One of the skills that I got to practice in my years of meditation retreats that most helped me in those roles was that recognition of the process of identifying with something and the practice, the ability to actually relax that identification, to let go. So for example, sitting on the cushion and seeing certain stories run through the mind, stories of our past or you know, circumstances in our lives. On one level, these are just thoughts in this moment arising in the mind. But if we're not seeing that clearly and we're identifying, we're starring in that story, you know, there's a real sense of self in there there's more suffering. So with a lot of experience of seeing that on the cushion, I can say that, especially in my role as a stepmother, <laughs> there were opportunities where uh, my teenage stepson was going through a lot of difficulty and uh, projecting a lot of anger and confusion. And of course, a step-parent is a good target a good scapegoat. <laughs> and I could feel in moments when something like that would come toward me, that contraction of self, like, but, 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 I'm the good stepmother. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm not the bad, the evil stepmother. I could just feel that contraction of self starting to take it personally. And in seeing that, in feeling that, I could pause and relax, relax it, not take it personally. And then even in moments, really just be able to drop into a place of compassionate connection 
just feeling his suffering. I can remember one moment where I actually thought, I can be that for you. This was inside, I didn't say it, but I thought, you're angry, you need someone to blame it on in this moment, okay, that can be me. It was so, I didn't need to take it personally. It was just causes and conditions playing out. And it was a great relief to be able to do that at times. Not always, and not to that degree always, (laughs) but at times. The classical definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to pain, our own pain and the pain of others. In our practice, we face the truth of suffering over and over again on so many different levels. There is suffering in this life. Can we open to it? Can we let ourselves be touched by it? Mostly, we're so conditioned to avoid it, to do whatever we can to avoid it, and that somehow we're bad or we're wrong if we're failing and we can't avoid it. But through practice, we begin to see in our own experience that opening to what's painful is actually a certain kind of doorway into a greater presence, and that not opening to it, to what's painful, we're cutting ourselves off. We're shutting ourselves down. We're not living fully. Compassion is really the juice in our practice. It's the connection with life. And this is not a theoretical understanding. Compassion arises when we're in contact with suffering directly. And we're moved by it. Years ago, when I did my very first 10-day retreat, it was out in California in the high desert near Yucca Valley, I had a simple but very powerful opening to compassion. I remember it clearly to this day, and this was in 1985. It was a very difficult retreat for me. I remember... um, just struggling a lot, a lot of emotional pain. And in a way, it felt like a series of little deaths, like parts of me were dying. And it was really hard work. I remember crying easily and often and feeling really self-conscious about that, like, what's wrong with me? (laughs) What am I doing wrong? wondering what all the tears were about. At some point in the retreat, it was only a 10, it was a 10-day retreat, it was about day seven, or maybe even eight, I just felt like I couldn't go on. I couldn't continue. I'd reached my limit. And I was pretty dedicated and pretty determined, so this was a big deal to decide I couldn't continue in kind of a self-defeat kind of way. But I decided I would leave, so I went to see the manager of the retreat, and I told him that I would leave the next day. And he was very kind and very calm, and he just accepted that and said, well, okay, 
um, just make sure you talk to one of the teachers, you know, before you leave and let them know. So that night, I skipped the last sitting of the day, and I hadn't skipped any sittings before that. And at this place, uh, the buildings were kind of spread out, so you had to walk in the night. And, it, you know, being high desert, it was quite a beautiful night sky, like lots of stars. So as I was walking back to my room to go to bed while everyone else was in the meditation hall, I just kind of surrendered. I just let go on another level. I let it be okay that I was leaving. Let it be okay that I was skipping that last sitting. Just surrendered. And suddenly, this image came to mind. And this isn't the kind of thing that normally happens to me. But as I was walking back to my room, I suddenly imagined I was carrying myself to my bed, like this small, young self, with just tenderness and care. And I knew in that moment it was compassion that I was feeling for all the suffering that I'd been going through on that retreat. And it was just tenderness in that moment of surrender and care. So an amazing shift actually happened that night, although I wasn't fully aware of it until the morning. I remembered going to bed and thinking, I'm leaving, but I'll pay attention to my dreams. And then I had a really interesting dream. And in the dream, I was trying to leave. I was trying to get to the airport, to leave the retreat. And at first I was in this big van, and I was in the back of the van, and I was being offered, like by a waiter, all the things that I'd craved on the retreat, <laughs> like pizza, and <laughs> I don't know, I can't remember what else, but like, you know, some attractive guy, and you know, it's just being offered things. But I kept saying, no, no, you know, it was just all not satisfactory. And then I wasn't in a van anymore, I was in a car and just desperate to get to the airport. But the driver wasn't really paying attention to me and we were slowing down and we got to this crossroads and the car just came to a halt and we were out of gas. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in the car just really fretting, we're out of gas, I'm not going to get there when another car pulled up at the crossroads. And out of this car, these four doors opened and these four beautiful, angelic female beings sort of poured out of the car and came over to my car. And they came over to my window and they said, what do you need? And I said, I need gas. <laughs> and they said, we have gas. And so they parked, put gas in the car. But at that point, I was so, um, taken with them that I didn't care anymore about getting to the airport. I just wanted to be with them. And then the whole dream shifted. And I was at the ocean, and there was a big wave coming in, and the wave crashed and broke, and the water came at me, just all these drops of water in slow motion that I could see, and they just poured over me. And in that moment, I knew that even my tears, all the tears that I'd been shedding on that retreat, it was just water. And it was beautiful and appropriate. And there was a real sense of peace and well-being. So I woke up 
And when I woke up, I was noting my breath. <laughs> it's the only time that has ever happened <laughs> in all my years of practice. I was noting the breath as I woke up, and I was really there and really quiet and really committed to staying. <laughs> Something had shifted. I remember the teacher who had been told by the manager, you know, to check in with me because I was leaving, came over to me during my morning pot washing job, and he said, are you leaving? And I just looked at him and went, and he said, are you okay? And I, <laughs> I didn't speak, I just nodded. And he said, all right, <laughs> left me alone. But it turns out I was at a crossroads. And my life changed at that point. I mean, it was that day when I decided to stay that I knew I needed to come here and sit the three-month retreat, which I did that fall. And then I stayed, came back, and was on staff, have stayed, and this place has been my home ever since. So in a very real way for me, it was that experience of compassion that was a pivotal uh, component of that crossroads of my life. Often we'll see um, compassion depicted as uh, a deity, Kuan Yin. Is Kuan Yin still in the... <laughs> I know she used to be out there. You'll see outside in the walking room there's a beautiful old uh, statue of Kuan Yin. I love that compassion's uh, manifested, you know, in form as a female deity. For me, it reminds me of the receptive quality in compassion. But if you look at images or figures of Kuan Yin, you'll also see this very um, real strength that at times has almost a kind of fierceness to it, an unshakableness. It's at once, she's at once both completely open and really steady, fiercely steady. It's quite beautiful. That fierce steadiness of compassion is one that we might overlook that we might not be so used to thinking about. And this is the strength of heart that doesn't wither or turn away in the face of pain, doesn't hide, is courageous in facing the truth. It's really empowering to meet life in that way. And sometimes we can be kind of pushed or edged to what almost feels like a breaking point before we discover it, before we discover that strength, that courage. If I could tell you another dream story, <laughs> it was another visit with my mom only years ago when she had first stopped working and she was struggling uh, quite severely at that point with alcohol addiction as well. And I had been called down to where she lives by the neighbors, just saying, you've got to come do something. It's really bad. 
So I went, and I was fearful going, not knowing what I was going to find. And it was really hard, really hard what I found. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to help. And I remember I got there in the late afternoon and, you know, basically kind of <laughs> sunk to the floor, which was where my mother was, and took her in my arms and, you know, tried to catch my breath and figure out what to do. And over the course of some hours, got her to bed and did a little cleaning up, but uh, knew that I had still a ton of work ahead of me in terms of trying to convince her to get help. Um, and I just didn't think it could happen. It looked impossible. So I remember it was a really long night where I was so fretful and frightened, and I just didn't think uh, I had it in me. I just, you know, I, I thought it was impossible. So I was not able to sleep for most of the night, but at some point, close to morning, I fell asleep on the couch in her living room. And it was just for a few minutes, just long enough to have a dream where I dreamt I was in this hall, sitting right here in this front row, I don't remember which spot, and the hall was filled with people like it is now, except we were all sitting there in this kind of interesting, with this interesting posture, which was holding one hand up like this. And I didn't know what it meant, but it felt really good to be sitting in the hall with all these other people in that posture. And I woke up and something had shifted. Maybe it was just getting a few minutes of sleep. Really, it could have been that. <laughs> you know how it can sort of take the edge off. But I think it was also something about the dream. And as it turned out, I was able to uh, effect some change that day. And it didn't look pretty. It, it wasn't sweet compassion. You know, it was like yelling in your face kind of compassion really reading my mom the riot act and she backed down and she signed herself in i got her in the hospital where she was for a month and she's been sober ever since then so when i got back to ims and i was telling somebody about the dream they said oh that's interesting this is the mudra the hand gesture for warding off fear and i thought oh i maybe i knew that on some level that i wasn't aware of or maybe I tapped into some kind of, you know, universal subconscious or something. But it's interesting. It's like we have certain resources that sometimes um, support us when we're right at that edge where we just feel like there's nothing left. So sometimes there's big moments like that. Often, it's much quieter, much more gradual, really um, slow and step-by-step uh, step that we discover what compassion is in ourselves. We might only have little tastes, little inklings of it, and that's perfectly appropriate. It's okay. There is no formula. There's no right way for this to happen. With any wholesome qualities of mind and heart that we're developing, we sometimes learn about what they are by learning about what they aren't. That's uh, kind of what I mean when I say it's a process of purification. 
you know, we show up, we intend to be compassionate, but actually then we feel hatred. This is purification, seeing what isn't compassion. Sometimes compassion is misunderstood as a kind of rawness of heart, where we feel everything acutely, and it feels as though we might be overcome with suffering in this world, just debilitated by it. So if you have that experience here on the cushion, maybe you know some of that in your work life or your personal life in trying to help, it's really important to recognize that that's happening and do what you can maybe to back off, to find balance. It's wise to find balance. And it's a big piece of what we learn in practice, this finding balance. Sometimes we might notice as we try, uh, as we work with opening to the suffering of others, a kind of pity arising. Pity is said to be the near enemy of compassion, which means it can look like it, it's close to it, but it's actually not it. It's not really compassion. It's quite different than the state of unconditional acceptance and the purity of connection that is compassion. With pity, there's some kind of separation. There's a sense of holding oneself apart, maybe even some kind of superiority, as though that kind of suffering wouldn't happen or couldn't happen to us. A really pure compassion means being present with suffering without denial, without defensiveness, without aversion. The opposite of compassion, what's called the far enemy in the teachings, is cruelty, which is so blatantly not compassion, it's easy to spot. But sometimes there are less obvious expressions of aversion that might arise in response to suffering, like anger or fear. I know both of those really well in my own experiences with my mom. Quite often, fear is what inhibits compassion. We're afraid that we'll be overwhelmed by the suffering. So we shut down, we build up a wall of defensiveness. And I just want to say something about kindness in regards to that wall. It's really important to, when one recognizes a wall inside that we've built up as a kind of defensiveness, to approach it respectfully. It was put there for a reason. It may no longer really be serving you at this point, but it probably did its job 
when it was put there. So, you know, maybe we can kind of approach it with a sense of thank you very much and maybe I won't be needing you now. We can decide when that wall is no longer needed. And we can start to ask ourselves, what's really happening when it feels like it's too much to bear? If you find fear or resistance, you can begin there, opening to the pain of that as best as you're able. When it's hard, when we're really caught up in some tangle, and we remember to open to that with kindness, that is the development of compassion. It's so basic, but we forget. Someone shared a really simple but beautiful example of this with me once. This was someone who was doing a retreat, and he was describing a struggle that he'd gotten into while he was on this retreat where a lot of difficult feelings were coming up about a particular scenario, a particular story from his life. And at some point, he noticed that for a while he'd been telling himself as a kind of mental noting, but it was rather dismissive. He was telling himself, it's just a thought. Like, it's just a thought. And then at one point, as he opened a little bit deeper to the pain of the situation, he was offering a totally compassionate and connected, it's just a thought more as a comfort, like, don't worry, it's only a thought. And there was a real shift. It was the same words he was using, but it was a shift in the tone, in the approach. And it happened really naturally from the fact that he had seen and connected with the pain of this particular mental knot that he was experiencing. I remember one year, a few years back, when I was doing a self-retreat nearby and I was experiencing emotional pain. I guess it's what I do on retreats. (laughs) And there wasn't really any particular content and I was just sort of plugging along. I was feeling a little doubt about myself. At this point, I was already teaching and thinking, God, you know, I shouldn't be teaching. Look at me, I'm a mess. And just feeling judgmental. And, And then at a certain point, I coined a new mental note and it was, ow. Ow, ow. And it did kind of help me just connect with it with some softness, some kindness. So even those really small openings, like the shift in the tone of the mental note, Even those small openings of compassion are tremendously powerful. Learning to open to our own suffering and the suffering of others helps us move from fear and alienation to connection. And that movement is so healing. This is a healing that we need individually and globally. These are a few more words from the Dalai Lama. (laughs) 
Of course, even as an ideal, the notion of developing unconditional compassion is daunting. Most people, including myself, must struggle even to reach the point where putting others' interests on a par with our own becomes easy. We should not allow this to put us off, however. And while undoubtedly there will be obstacles on the way to developing a genuinely warm heart, there is the deep consolation of knowing that in, in doing so, we are creating the conditions for our own happiness. As I mentioned earlier, the more we truly desire to benefit others, the greater the strength and confidence we develop and the greater the peace and happiness we experience. So give yourselves a break. Not even the Dalai Lama claims to have mastered unconditional compassion. It's a lifetime's practice, at least. I'd like to close with a little bit more from Kate Braestrup's book. These are her words about um, love being what was offered to her in the time of her husband's death and what she tries to offer to those who are suffering in her work as a chaplain on these search and rescue missions. I think one reason I like working with crisis and death is that all the complicated and complicating tools of our natal tribe, the intellect, the rational analysis, the all-pervasive irony, all these are useless. It doesn't matter how educated, moneyed, or smart you are. When your child's footprints end at the river's edge, when the one you love has gone into the woods with a bleak outlook and a loaded gun, when the chaplain is walking toward you with bad news in her mouth, then only the cliches are true, and you will repeat them unashamed. Your life, too, will swing suddenly and cruelly in a new direction with breathtaking speed. And if you are wise, and it's surprising and wondrous how many people have this wisdom in them, you will know enough to look around for love. It will be there, standing right on the hinge holding out its arms to you. If you are wise, whoever you are, you will let go, fall against that love, and be held. And this is what we're practicing here, providing that love for each other, for ourselves, to fall against when we're faced with suffering. I'd just like to close by saying, as we practice and refine our compassion patiently, diligently, may it help us 
may it enable us to open to the suffering in this world, the smaller personal suffering and the larger global suffering. And on this day, the anniversary of the suffering of 9-11, we can collectively dedicate our efforts in this regard to the benefit and the well-being of all beings everywhere. Let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.